0: You may be seated. Well, I just want to start this morning by showing you a picture of my family that was taken about uh, in the last month or so. Uh, God has uh, blessed us with six children, ranging from 15 all the way down to four years old, and we were at a softball tournament, which my daughter, Winley in the middle there uh, had won. And uh, the question I used to get asked quite a bit was when I tell people I have six kids is, wow, how did that happen? And I'm like, well, do you really need me to explain that to you or not? And the question I tend to get more now than that is, uh, where does the height come from? And I tend to get offended. I'm like, what are you trying to say <laughs> about me? Well, <that, laughs> where you're asking where all the height comes from? Well, my son in the back there, he's 15 and late, and he's uh, you know towering over me. McCabe, not too far behind. And I remember, you know, just 15 years ago, uh, my wife uh, came pregnant with. Uh, Leighton, and we revealed that pregnancy to my parents. We were at our house, and her parents were there, my parents were there, and we had one of those little uh, babies that kind of shows, like, where you're at in the gestation period. And so uh, when the baby's in the womb, and we put it in a box, wrapped it up, and we were at dinner, and then we gave that box to our parents, and our parents opened it up, and they kind of looked at us. They looked down at the box, looked at us, realizing, wait a minute, are you pregnant? And the answer was yes. And there's a bit of a shock and joy. Shock because we'd only been married for a few months at that point in time, but this great joy that we were having a child and their first grandchild. And it's fun to reveal those types of things to family and friends. It's fun just to tell people about things that are going on in our life that are exciting and important uh, to you. In fact, in our culture, there's the trend of gender reveal parties. And I remember my sister and my brother-in-law Uh, They had a golf ball, put the golf ball on the tee and he hits it into the air and there's blue kind of powder that goes into there signifying that they're having a baby boy. Things that matter to us, we want to share those with people that we care about. And when we reveal things that are important to us, that also oftentimes leads to some form of a reaction, like in the case of revealing that you're having a child there's great joy and excitement. But in verse 15 of Genesis 18, we find Abraham here, he's eating a meal with God. And this in and of itself is a remarkable thing. There is no record of God eating with a meal with any human being at this, up to this point in time. In fact, Abraham experienced something that really no other human had experienced until the coming of Christ. It was unique to him until the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth. And as he's finishing this meal, verse 16, we're told, the men got up from there and looked out over Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Abraham is walking with God and what we find out in Genesis 19 is two angels and this dialogue begins between God and Abraham, which which God reveals information to Abraham about what he is going to do to the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah, the city of Sodom where his nephew Lot lives. And as this information is revealed to Abraham, it, it elicits a response from Abraham. There's three parts to this morning, this passage. First is God reveals his plan to Abraham. Second, Abraham appeals to God and God's response to Abraham's appeal. Part one, God reveals his plan to Abraham. Verse 17, the Lord asks this question as Abraham is seeing God off. He says, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Should I tell Abraham or not what I am about to do? Now before we jump to any wrong conclusions about God, we want to be clear that God isn't asking this question because he doesn't know what he should do. He doesn't need to process his thinking out loud like oftentimes we do. Oftentimes the way I think is I have to think out loud to myself or to other people. But he doesn't need to process anything. God knows everything and he knows all things. He has infinite knowledge and wisdom at all points in time. And rather than God asking this question for his benefit, he, I think, asking the question for our benefit. That is to reveal his thinking to us as the readers of Genesis. He's inviting us into his thought process of what he is about to do. Well, what is it that God is about to do? Well, in short, what God is going to do or says he's going to do is destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities. And why would God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, verse 20 says this, the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. The word immense means their sin is large or numerous. Extremely serious carries with the idea their sin is very heavy. They're sinning with power or strength against the Lord. Verse 13 of Genesis 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. This phrase, evil, sinning immensely, it's a rare phrase. And it suggests that they were living at a level lower than the normal sinner. That they were far worse, more debased than the average person. That their sin was with power and strength. That they are extremely wicked people. Well, how so? Well, the word outcry used in this passage is a word that is used in Scripture to describe the cries of people who are oppressed and who are brutalized. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, uses it to refer to the scream of terror by an individual or a city when it's attacked. And Ezekiel gives us some, sheds some light on what was happening in Sodom. Verse 49 of Ezekiel 16, Now this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but they didn't support the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable acts before me. So I removed them when I saw this. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were included uh, self-centeredness and pride, arrogance. They neglected the poor and the needy. They did detestable things. And Genesis 19 sheds light on some of the detestable things that they were involved in. That sexual perversion, sexual sin ran rampant in Sodom. Then when the angels of the Lord, they go down to Sodom and they go to the house of Lot, we find in Genesis 19, verse 5, they called out, they there is the men of the city. They cry out or call out to Lot and said, where are the men who came with you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. I mean, what an uh, amazing thing to see, to hear, to witness. You have these visitors in your home, these two men. And the men of the city of Sodom are trying to beat down the door to Lot's home to get these men out to rape them. I mean, what, how disgusting and twisted of a culture. There's attempted homosexual gang rape in Genesis 19, in Sodom. The sin of Sodom is this heinous, moral, social corruption. There's an arrogant disregard for just the basic human rights. There's Cynical insensitivity to others, this upturning of the natural order of God's creation. And in Genesis 19, 13, we're told, For we, the angel speaking here, are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord. Their sin was so great, so serious, against others and ultimately against God that it demanded punishment, it demanded punishment justice, that the unpunished sin, it cried out to heaven for vengeance, just like the blood of Abel did, that what is happening in Sodom is so grotesque, so heinous, that it cries out to God, that it reaches to the heavens, to the ears of God, that justice, there must be vengeance for the sin that has been committed, for their sin is grave, and it demands punishment. Now God says in verse 21, I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. Now this statement should not be interpreted or understood as indicating that God has limited knowledge and he's unaware of something and he needs to go gain information about what is happening. As Tozer said, God knows all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, every uttered secret. He has total understanding of everything that's going on at all points in time. He's never without knowledge. Instead, what this implies, or should tell us, is that God's giving direct attention to the matter. And these words reveal something about God and about his judgment that we'll see, is that his judgment, his decisions to bring punishment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was undertaken with careful scrutiny of the evidence. You know, God is not willy-nilly in his judgment. It's not like he just kind of all of a sudden got angry one day, flew off the handle, and then does something. He's not like a, a parent who loses their temper, a person who can't keep their emotions in check. But God's judgment, it's precise. It's calculated. He bases his judgments on full, accurate information full, accurate information, knowledge of what is going on in every facet, every way. He knows all that is happening. And what's also happening in verses 20 and 21 is that God is then revealing to Abraham what he is about to do, that these cities that are living in grotesque, immense sin against God are deserving of punishment. But why? why does God decide to reveal this plan of his to Abraham? Why does he pass this information on to Abraham? You know, the truth of the matter is that God doesn't have to say anything. God can just do what God wants to do. He doesn't come to Abraham because he needs Abraham's opinion about what he should do or Abraham's approval. He's not just trying to share shocking information to get Abraham to pay attention to God. He's not like, you know, we are, where we're oftentimes trying to get people's attention through saying something or doing something, you know, putting something on social media to get likes and, and clicks and attention. He's not just kind of doing it to satisfy Abraham's curiosity. He doesn't have to give any reason to Abraham, but he does, and I think there are two reasons that he gives or why he decides to share this with Abraham. The first is because of what God promised to bring from Abraham. What did God promise to bring from Abraham? Verse 18, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. He goes back to the covenant promise that he made with Abraham, that Abraham is to become this great and powerful nation. And what they will do as it pertains to the nations throughout the rest of the, the, rest of the earth, the rest of the world, is they will be a channel of blessing to all the other nations. And so one has to do with the promise that he has made to Abraham. Second is because of what Abraham is responsible to do. What is Abraham responsible to do? Well, in part, he's responsible to be a great leader, a great leader of his family, of these people of God. Verse 19, God says, For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house right after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. What is Abraham responsible to do to lead his people to keep the way of the Lord? To walk with God. In the way of the Lord, it indicates a life whose conduct, whose behavior, it conforms to the prescriptions of God. It conforms to the instruction and commands of God. God says live this way and you live your life that way, and in this case he says to do what is right and just. That he was responsible to teach his people to walk with God, to live in righteousness and justice, to live fairly, to be a people who do what is right, who act justly towards everyone at all times. And see, Sodom and Gomorrah, as one commentator put it, provide the starkest, darkest contrast because their lifestyle was the absolute antithesis of righteousness and justice. They didn't treat people fairly. They didn't treat people righteously. They didn't act in a way that was honoring to God. They were the exact opposite. Therefore, when God judges Sodom and Gomorrah, their ruins, the ruins of the city becomes a powerful teaching tool to Abraham and his descendants. This city that's on the border of Israel, this eerie, burnt-out, sulfur-stenched city as we'll see next week the remains of it, they're permanently testifying to what happens to a person who rejects God, who rejects following God. And so in part, I think God is choosing to reveal this to Abraham, to tell him what is going on, what he's going to do to these evil and wicked cities in order to strengthen Abraham's resolve in following him and his ability to instruct his godly children or his children to live godly lives. Just points to the city, remember what happens when you don't walk with God. Remember what happens when you choose to disobey God. The end of your, the road of disobedience to God is destruction. It might be fun right now, but it will end to a life of great punishment and destruction, yet at the same time, Servants may not know their master's purposes, but friends do, and who is Abraham? We're told he's chosen by God in verse 19, which literally means he's known by God, and then he has a a meal with God and he's walking with God, and James the brother of Jesus testifies that Abraham is called a friend of God, James 2.23. That he was called God's friend, and servants may not know their master's purposes, but friends do. And so as God's friend, and conduit of blessing to the whole world, God decides to share with Abraham what is going to happen to these neighboring cities, in particular where his nephew, whom he loves and cares about, Lot, lives. So how does Abraham respond? Part two, Abraham appeals to God. Verse 22, the men turned from there and went down towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. The men who are with God, again, who are angels, we find out in Genesis 19, they head to Sodom to investigate the outcry, and Abraham is standing before God. And it's kind of like God is waiting for Abraham to respond. God has just dropped this news on Abraham, and he's waiting for Abraham to respond, to come back with some kind of response. And what does Abraham do? Well, Abraham, we're told in verse 23, he steps forward. He steps toward God, and he approaches God. And he begins to make an appeal to God. An appeal to God that God would spare the destruction of these cities. Now, how? How did Abraham make his appeal to God? Or what are the aspects of his appeal? Well, I think there's three important aspects to Abraham's appeal. The first is, this, is he appeals to the character of God. He appeals to the character of God, verses 23 through 25. He steps forward and he says to God, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous it with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Now, it seems to be two things going on here that Abraham believes. One is that Abraham appears to believe that there are righteous people in Sodom. That along with all the wicked people, all of those who are sinning immensely against God, that there are some who are righteous. In fact, we know there are because Lot is there. And Lot is described by Peter in 2 Peter 2, 7 as righteous, and he says, and if he, God rescued righteous Lot, that Lot is in Sodom. And it seems that Abraham is assuming that Lot is in Sodom, or he knows Lot's in Sodom, and that Lot is righteous, and he's assuming there are other righteous people there. But there's something else that he believes also in tandem with that is that he believes that God is a just judge. He believes that God is a just judge, and it's on the basis, this basis of what Abraham believes about God, that he makes his appeal. He appeals to the character of God, that God is a righteous and just judge. He says, "You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge?" of the whole earth do what is just? And I think what Abraham is saying here, he's asking the question rhetorically because he believes that God is just. And this is the character of God. God is righteous, that in his being he is righteous, he is just in all of his actions, in all of his judgments. That God is righteous and just, that the righteousness is an attribute of God's moral being. And because of that, everything he does, all of his actions are right. It's impossible for God to do anything that is unjust. His judgments are righteous. His mercies are righteous. The judge of the earth will do what is right. In Abraham, his whole intercession, his whole appeal rests on this understanding of God. God. Because you are fair, because you are just, if there are this many righteous people in the city, won't you spare the city? Won't you spare it from destruction? That Abraham, in one sense, he's reminding God of who he is. Not that God needs to be reminded, but he's going to God and he's making his appeal to God and the nature and the principles of who God is. And he's saying, God, won't you spare the city from your judgment from destruction because you are a just judge. You are fair in all of your judgment, so he bases his appeal on the character of God. Second, is he appeals boldly and humbly before God. When you look at Abraham's appeal, there is no doubt in my mind that there's a boldness that exists. I mean, he's asking God to spare cities that are evil and immensely sinning against the Lord. And why? Why does he boldly appeal to God? Because he's confident, I believe, again, in who God is. He's confident that God is right and just in his actions. He's convinced that God cannot and will not do wrong. That he has no doubt that God is the author, the arbitrator of all justice and righteousness. I mean, think about what's going on in his appeal here. In verse 28 and 29, he says, Suppose the 50 50 righteous lack five, will you destroy the the whole city for lack of five? And he replied, I will not destroy it if I find forty five. Then he spoke to him again, Suppose 40 are found there, and he answered, I will not do it on account of 40. And What Abraham does is he continues to press in, and he continues to ask God, and with each ask he's giving a lower number of righteous people needed. In fact, the last three petitions, he lowered the number of necessary righteous people by tens. There is a boldness on the part of Abraham in his appeal before God, but there is also a humility, that he's humble. He's not arrogant but he's bold and humble. Verse 27, I think, points this out. He says, Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes. Abraham comes before God and he says, Even though I am dust and ashes, to signify what? That he is lower than God. In verse 30 he says, Let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Verse 32, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak one more time that there is this humility and there is this reverence, this respect in his appeal toward God. He's coming to God and saying, God, because you are righteous, because you are just, will you not do this? But there's this hum- humble understanding that Abraham might be wrong. Not that he's wrong about the justice and mercy of God, but that God might actually spare the city just because he comes and asks God to do so on the basis of his just, justice and mercy. But God doesn't have to. And There's this reverence and this respect in his appeal toward God, that he is bold but humble, that God is the God of heaven that rules and reigns over everything, that his word and all is, has created all things, that all things exist because of him, and God is great and we are small, and Abraham says, we are, I am nothing but dust and ashes, but I come to you, and God, I'm going to appeal to you on the account of any righteous that you would spare the destruction of this city, of these cities, that Abraham is bold and he is humble. Abraham. Thirdly, he appealed persistently to God. He, does, he continues to ask. That You look at these verses 26 through 33 that again and again he approaches God asking God to spare the city from destruction on the basis of so many righteous people being in the city. That Abraham is persistent. He keeps asking. He keeps seeking. He continued knocking. That he kept going to God again and again. And Jesus teaches us, us to do the same in prayer. This principle that he gives in Luke 18, that we should pray and we should not give up. Pray always and not give up. That we should be persistent in seeking God in prayer. And Jesus uses the parable, this example of a judge and a widow, and there's a judge in a town, he says, that doesn't fear God, doesn't respect people, and then you have this widow in verse 3 that's in this town, and keeps coming to the judge and says, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while, the judge is unwilling, but later he says to himself, even though I don't fear God, even though I don't respect people, don't care about people, but because this woman, this widow, keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming, that she was persistent. She continued to ask, and then Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth?" That Jesus is trying to draw, he's bringing out this point, this principle of persistent prayer, of continuing to pray, continuing to seek God. And what's interesting is in this passage, the prayer is for justice. And from God's perspective, justice will come, and it will come quickly. He will rescue his people from suffering and injustice in the world and he will justly judge those who have rebelled. But from our perspective, from a human perspective, oftentimes justice seems like a long time coming. It couldn't come fast enough. But God's people, Jesus says, are to be persistent in prayer, just as the widow is persistent in asking, in asking, continuing to ask, that we should be like Abraham, persistently praying, seeking God, not giving up in asking of the Lord. And when I look at Abraham's appeal, one thing that stands out to me is Abraham's compassion for people. You know, Abraham isn't going to God and just asking that God would spare Lot, his nephew. He's not just making intercession for Lot himself, but he's making intercession for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is interesting, that it seems that Abraham has this compassion like God does for others. Not just for his nephew, but for all that are in Sodom, and he demonstrates this God-like compassion for other people that he cares, that he cares enough to go then before God and make an appeal to God, that God would spare these people. Now, how does God respond? How does God respond to Abraham's appeal? Well, one way that God responds to Abraham's appeal is I think he does so just gently and patiently. In verse 26, the Lord said, if I find find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham, he asked God again and again, in fact, six times, what if, God? What if there's this many? What if there's this many? And each time, God responds. And God does not respond meanly or in anger, but he is patient with Abraham. He's patient with him. He's gentle towards him. He doesn't scold Abraham or push Abraham away or ignore Abraham, but he is welcoming to Abraham's request. He welcomes him. He's patient with his Asking again and again and again, and he's gracious in his response. You look at verses 26 and 28. If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it. If I find 45 there, and that number continues to go down even to 10, and God says, I will not destroy it. I will not destroy it." That God is gracious in his response, and we know what God does. God does actually rescue Lot from the destruction of wicked Sodom, and he rescues Lot and his family before destroying those who are sinning immensely against the Lord. The God is gracious and merciful. But he is just and fair in his punishment and judgment. He will spare the righteous ultimately and he will judge the wicked with a just punishment. And like Abraham, God has revealed a coming judgment to us. That Abraham has been given information that there is a judgment coming on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah where his nephew is at. And likewise, God has revealed that there is a coming judgment on the world that we live in as well. A day is coming when there will be a just punishment handed to the wicked, to those living and rebellion into God and his ways, a day where the righteous will be spared, like Lot, but a day where the wicked will be punished forever, an eternal separation from God. And Peter writes about this day in his second letter to the church, and he says, They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In this passage, Peter is dealing with those who are scoffing at the idea that God is going to return. That he's going to come back. They're scoffing at the promise of the Lord's return, arguing that because the reason that God is not going to return is because everything has remained the same since creation. God will not intervene in in the world. But Peter says they overlook this fact. They overlook this reality. They're willingly ignorant or willfully ignorant of this truth that God has intervened in the world through creating the world and through judging the world by a flood, that he destroyed the world through the water, through flooding the world in the days of Noah. Peter cites two obvious occasions in which God has intervened in the world, the creation and the judgment of the world through the flood. And what Peter says is by that same word, the same powerful word of God that creates and sends judgment, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire. Not for water and for a flood, but for fire. This day of reckoning will come. The history of the world will not go on forever. There is an end coming. And like Abraham, we are to act. We are to respond to that news, that information, how. What should we do? Well, there are three things similar to Abraham, the first to live holy lives. Peter continues on in chapter 3 and verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief on that day. The heavens will pass away with a loud noise. Elements will be burned and be dissolved, and the earth and its works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be. What sort of people should you be? This is the sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of the Lord and hasten its coming. That the way that we ought, are to live, ought to live as believers in Christ who know of the day, the, the, the fact that Christ is going to return and that this judgment to come is that we are to live holy, godly lives or lives of righteousness and justice. We are to live lives that, are walking in the way of the Lord. That the day of judgment that is coming should spur us on to live like Christ, to conform our lives to Christ, to live as people who are holy, separate from sin, that we're not entrenched in the things of the world, living like the world, but we are separate from the world, living like Christ, living lives of righteousness and godliness. And for our own sake, we'll know for the sake of others that our lives in the way we live might testify to the one who has come and lived and died for us, Christ. That our lives would speak to and testify to Jesus. And as a result of that day coming, the second thing we must do is petition our holy God. Like Abraham, we should step forward, and we should petition God. We should move toward God. In fact, God invites us into a relationship with himself. God invites us to come before him and ask and pray. Paul, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, he says, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. This word, petition. It refers to the idea of request being made on the basis of urgency or need, of urgency or need, that you need something right now. There's an urgency in your life, and so you go ask for that thing in order to deal with that need. And there is an urgency, and there is a need for all people in our world. There is a coming judgment, and there's an urgency and a need to be rescued from that coming judgment, and one of the things that we are instructed to do is to Go to God and petition God on behalf of others for their salvation, that they would put their faith in Christ, that we petition God for the salvation of our friends, family members, coworkers, people that we run into regularly at different stores that we shop, at. that we'd be petitioning God again and again for the salvation of others, but lastly, that we proclaim the holy life of Christ. We want to live holy lives, we want to petition God, but we also want to proclaim the reality of the gospel. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession to do what? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That all of us that know Christ, one thing is true about us is that we've been rescued from darkness. From living enslaved to our sin and in rebellion to God, from death, from enslavement to Satan, into a relationship with God himself. We've been brought into the light, into his kingdom. And as Christians, we are to proclaim that truth in this world that is dark. The Christians... That we are the ones who in one sense are mediating the hope of the gospel to the world. Now it's Christ who saves. It's God who saves. But for whatever reason, God has called us to be his hands and feet, to be his mouth, to proclaim the glorious news of the gospel to the world around us. To proclaim Christ. Because the holy life of Christ is the only thing that can save a person from the holy wrath of God that nobody can hear or nobody can believe unless they hear. And nobody can hear unless we speak the message of Christ. And so there is a judgment coming, and in part what we are to do is not only to live lives that are conformed to the image of Christ, but to proclaim the good news of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ.